All right. Want to go ahead and read the thing? I do. I do want to go ahead and read the thing. The Roman Empire. Just the name conjures up images of legions of soldiers marching in perfect unison, solemn emperors gesturing from statue pedestals, people in togas, etc., etc. The histories hold Rome as an empire of the ages, an undefeatable military machine that conquered everyone they came across without faltering or fear. They'd been given trouble before, Hannibal of Carthage, the Gauls, the Teutons, the Celts, Egypt, but in the end, all had bent the knee and been forced to pay homage to Rome. They were in the reign of Caesar Augustus, greatest and most accomplished of their leaders, and with their war machines and tactical prowess, they simply could not lose. Then their sights turned south of Egypt, into the Nubian territory. The legions were mustered and the battle plans drawn up. It looked like an easy conquest, a quick war to expand Rome further into Africa, gaining access to plentiful supplies of gold and a robust trade network. What they got, however, was a bloodying that can be seen as the only time the Roman Empire ever actually surrendered, delivered by the steady hand of the one-eyed queen of the Kushites. In this episode of Relative Disasters, the Roman invasion of the Kingdom of Kush in 27 BCE. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we get distracted with. I'm Greg, Professor of Monocular Combat Studies here at Relative Disaster University. And I'm Ella. I'm the Chief Coordinator for the Golden Arrow Messaging Services, which is a subsidiary of Relative Disasters Postage. Oh, I like Thank it. Thank you. I like it. Yeah, I'm really excited about this new position. And uh, I'm excited <laughs> to learn more about the Roman invasion of Kush, which I have not heard yeah. of before. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's pretty great. So we don't talk a lot about wars on this show because all wars are disasters. It's true. But we sometimes will look at an aspect of a war or a battle or a person or a single moment that has significance. Uh, in this case, the decision of Rome to expand into the territory of Queen Amanirenas. This is also apparently continuing my second episode of the season has to be about an awesome African leader series. Last year we did Mansa Musa, and so now we're doing Queen Amani Renas. So, background time! Yes. First, let's talk about where the Roman Empire was at this time. Rome. Technically, it wasn't the Roman Empire. Uh, it was the Roman Principate. So Julius Caesar had taken Rome from a nominal republic to a nominal dictatorship. Neither right. was either, but that's the short Cliff's Notes version of it. So after Julius Caesar was assassinated, Rome had a period called the Crisis, where the assassin faction fought against the triumvirate of Mark Antony, Marcus Lepidus, and Julius's great-nephew Octavian, all of 19 years old at the time. Mm. The triumvirate kicked the heck out of the assassin's armies and then divided the rule of Rome up between the three of them, which lasted for all of five minutes before three very ambitious dudes decided to have it out. When the dust settled, Lepidus was exiled, Antony and Cleopatra were dead, and Octavian dusted himself off and set out being the greatest ruler Rome had. He had the Roman Senate appoint him tribune, commendatus, and censor, mm. meaning he had the executive power of the military, the law, and culture. In less capable hands, this would lead to an oppressive dictatorship, but under Octavian's rule, it led to a really kind of nice dictatorship. Oh, uh, Yeah. He, a, a benevolent dictatorship, if you will. 
Maybe he just had better propaganda. And maybe he did. He rejected the title of emperor and was called Princeps Civitatus, first Ooh. citizen, instead. Uh, he also adopted the ancient title of Augustus, because why be modest when you can be awesome? That's right. I mean, that's my philosophy. I mean, that's those are words to live by. Uh, the thing about Octavian, hereafter referred to as Augustus, was that he actually had a really good head for managing an empire. Uh, he, he built roads, he established a postal system, he codified a standing army of professional soldiers. Rome, for the first time, had uh, police and firefighters. And he generally did a good job of civics and infrastructure, huh. which kicked off the period known as the Pax Romana, where for about 200 years, there were no large-scale wars and lots of peace. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was nice. But there were plenty of small-scale wars, though, uh, because the Roman Empire got an empire. That's what the firefighters are for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he made peace with the Parthians through diplomacy, mm -hmm. and then just basically annexed everybody he could. He annexed parts of Dalmatia, Pannonia, Noricum, Hispania, and Germania. Egypt had become a co-Greek kingdom with Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and he mm -hmm. just removed the co-part. And then he set his sights south of the Nile, and, that's, and that brings us to the background on the kingdom of Cush. So, Cush lies to the south of Egypt in the Nubian area of northeastern Africa. While Egypt tends to get all the attention, Cush was actually a huge power, at one point even conquering Egypt and ruling it as the 25th dynasty. Cush is in modern day Sudan? Sudan. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by the time Rome had come knocking, though, they'd moved back down south. Gotcha. They were technologically advanced and had a sophisticated understanding of medicine and mathematics. They built pyramids. Mm -hmm. They weren't as big as the Egyptian ones, but they, they built them and they understood geometry and trigonometry. They developed a written language, so we actually have a history of them. Hey! Remember, as we say in the history world, clay tablets or it didn't happen. Ah, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Do we say that? Do we, we say do. that, Greg? We do now, yes. Okay. Uh, but we still haven't, the problem is that we still haven't deciphered all of their script. So there's a ton huh. of untranslated writings of theirs. They wrote in a language called Meroitic. And we have a ton of tablets of Meroitic, but we only understand, you know, really a fraction of it. Gotta get um, one of those Rosetta Stones. We need, we need a Rosetta Stone, exactly. Mm -hmm. Which is too bad, because some of it would definitely shed better light on the events of this story, but since we don't have the Kushite side of the story, we have to rely on the less-than-ideal Roman accounts and archaeological discoveries. Oh, well, famously, the Romans tell the oh, yes. truth in every Absolutely. of Absolutely. <laughs> everything ever. So, Amani Renas was the Kandake of Kush. The Kandake is a royal title sort of equivalent to queen mother or regent mother with some very important distinctions. Cush's mm -hmm. line of secession was matrilinear. Mm -hmm. So the next in line for the throne would be the firstborn of the eldest daughter. In the right. absence of a king or if the king was too young, the Kandake would rule. In Cushite royalty, the most important people of the royal family were the king's mother and the king's wife. Not necessarily the king. Uh, well, I mean... Uh, yeah. Yeah. In some in some cases, the Kandake would be a fully independent ruler with their husband holding a title equivalent to consort. Trophy. Yeah, it's pretty great. Trophy uh, husband. So Kush was a prosperous, powerful kingdom. I can't underline that enough. Like, Egypt mm -hmm. gets all the attention, but Kush was right up there. 
uh, they had gold and ivory as well mm -hmm. as iron making and a lot of water technology. They, they had like reservoirs in the middle really? of the desert. Yeah. Um, they had a very powerful military, primarily of archery units. They were amazing archers. And at the time this whole story kicks off, Kush was enjoying a time of relative peace. They hmm. had really good trade negotiations with Cleopatra's Egypt, and things were nice between them. Okay. All of that changes with the deaths of Cleopatra and Antony, with Augustus annexing Egypt and appointing a prefect. Now, this prefect is basically both the villain and the bumbling fool of this piece. Oh, both. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, his name is Gaius Cornelius Gallus. Oh yeah. You get that Cornelius in there. That says bumbling to me. Yeah. Yeah. So Cornelius, one of the first things he does after being appointed prefect is he pushes down into Nubia and lays claim to the island of Philae, mm -hmm. which is an important strategic location on the Nile and it's part of Cush. Okay. <laughs> so the Cushites naturally resisted, but he brought legions in and they were defeated. So Amanurinas had to basically just had to grit her teeth and accept it. Right. The, the might of the Roman legions was just too great. So she did what all good leaders do, which is bide her time. Cornelius began imposing taxes, which is what governments do. But right. these were extreme taxes. He, and he was taxing people who were technically still citizens of Cush, not Romans. And mm -hmm. he was taxing people trying to trade within Philae and... The area surrounding, he was taxing people on the Nile. He was he was doing some. He was being unreasonable, basically. Is it my sounds point. ambitious. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of uh, taxation. And and he was ambitious. He kept putting up these little like uh, glory trophies of himself everywhere, talking about how great he was. And that's Aww. a big no no in ancient Rome because well, you're supposed to glorify the emperor. Yeah, but we love healthy self-esteem here, too. Yeah, this was beyond healthy self-esteem. This 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 went, like, <laughs> full-on delusional. Um, and And he was also a, a real blowhard, and he commits political suicide by bad-mouthing Augustus. Oh, yeah, we don't so, do that. The Caesar is a patient man, but come on. <laughs> don't, You're out, Cornelius. Yep, don't come at the king and miss. Augustus, Great job robbing everyone, but this yeah. is it for you. Yep, exactly. So Augustus asks the Senate if they would pretty please convict Cornelius of treason, exile him, and take his estates for the good of Rome. Mm -hmm. And of course they did. <laughs> and rather than face judgment, Cornelius kills himself. Uh oh. So Augustus appoints another prefect. Alias Gallus. And Alias Gallus is in charge of Egypt for like two minutes before Augustus is like, hey, don't forget, you need to take your legions to go start working on annexing Arabia. Right. That's next so on the list. It's next in line. So mm -hmm. he pulls the legions out of Egypt to go fight in Arabia. And Amani Renis just carpe diemed the heck out of this and starts striking back. Okay. So Amani Renis and her king Teritekas lead their army up into Egypt. They take Syene, Philae, and Elephantine. Is it Elephantine those are, or Elephantine? Well, wait, those are areas? Those are cities. Or cities? Okay. Yeah. So, wait, these are like little city-states too, right? No, this is this is unified under under Antony and Cleopatra, Egypt at this point. They're they're okay, not so... really city-states. They are they are countries. So they're under a common rule. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is a territory of about 200 square miles that mm -hmm. they just retake in this one big offensive. 
Uh, she then cuts off the head of one of the statues of Augustus and carries Ouch. it back with herself to Meroe. Uh, and, and this is my favorite sidebar of this whole piece. She uses this mm-hmm. to pull off one of the great historical insults. You ready? So what she so. does is she has the head buried under the entryway steps to the Temple of Amun. Mm-hmm. So that every single person walking in steps on his head. <laughs> it is a it is a very classy way of reminding the Romans that uh, you know she's in charge. Does anyone know it's there, or is this yes. just like a oh, it's publicized. Burn. It's okay. publicized. There there are these big wall murals and frescoes and everything that mm-hmm. li- that literally have you know the emperor head under her feet as she's sitting on her throne. It's I like great. that. I like that. It's pretty great. Um. But then, of course, the Romans strike back and the war begins in earnest. So with Aelius Gallus gone in Arabia, a man named Gaius Petronius was appointed acting prefect. And really, this war is between Petronius and Amanirenas. Okay. Okay. So Petronius raises an army and marches south. He sends envoys out to demand the Kushites surrender, but... All the envoys come back just in a state of confusion because the only message that they're able to really convey back to Petronius is that the Kushites have no leader. King Teratekas had died. He he had either been injured or fell ill, but he died. So Amanirenas was sending away the envoys because they would only speak to the quote-unquote king. So she's like, well, heck with you guys then. Yeah, a little um, bit of misogyny there, Roman Empire. Huh. Yeah, a little bit. So at the city of Selkis, the Kushites fight Petronius's army and get wrecked. Uh, they were. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that the technical military term? That is the term? technical military term. <laughs> the Kushites were on bad ground. They did not have the ability to really bring their bows to bear, and the legions just walked right through them. Mm-hmm. So after this relatively easy victory, Petronius pushes further into Kush, and he's like, well, if their army is this weak, I'll just take the whole damn country. Yeah, so, that's going to make the Caesar happy. Exactly. Uh, so Amani Reynas does two things that are really, really smart. She realizes that she can't fight the legions, you know, using their own tactics, obviously. Mm-hmm. So her army starts performing a series of basically hit-and-run moves. Um, they're giving ground, but they're, you know, they're making them pay for it. Okay. And the other thing she's doing is she's capitalizing on this, uh, misunderstanding of how the Kushite royalty works. Right. They don't know she's in charge. They don't know she's in charge. Exactly. That's so smart. Okay. So what she does is her, her generals and commanders that get captured, they tell the Romans that they're, they're all being led by the Kandake. But the mm-hmm. Romans are like, ah, no, this can't be right. You need to tell us where Amanirenus' son is, because he's going to be the real ruler. <laughs> They're not going to fall for this whole, you know, our, our, a woman is leading us thing, right? Ladies can't be in charge of armies. Exactly. Aww. So her son's name is Akinidad, and he is one of her generals. He's leading a bunch of her troops in some of these sort of hit-and-run, delaying tactics kind of moves. And how old is he? He is not that old. I couldn't I couldn't nail down his actual age, but he's like an old teenager. He's like 18, 19 at this time. Oh, yeah. You don't want to put believe. those guys in charge. 
well, very poor impulse he's, control. No, nope, he's doing very well. He's doing what his mother tells him to do. He's doing all okay, right. Okay, as long as they're doing what their mother tells them to do, they're fine. This is a discussion I have with my teenage son. I would imagine. When he follows my advice, he's fine. <laughs> Everything goes fine if you just do what I tell you. It's when he makes um, his own decisions that things get screwed up. Well, so, that's interesting. So that's her, her sort of capitalizing on misinformation campaign right there. Mm-hmm. And so what what winds up happening is the generals direct the Romans to the city of Napata, because Napata used to be the former capital city of Kush. Mm-hmm. The Kushites had, like, generations ago moved their capital to the more southern city of Meroe, mm-hmm. but they're like, well, uh, you know, uh, prince has got to be at Napata. So Petronius takes the bait and he marches there. Of course, neither the prince nor the queen were there, and now his supply line was stretched very thin. He'd gone almost 600 miles, okay? Mm. And the actual Kushite capital of Meroe is another 300 miles south. Yeah. So Petronius basically cuts his losses. He burns the city, he takes captives, and he starts heading back. That's so... That's just such poor sportsmanship. (laughs) It really bothers me. Yep, yep. Yep. Got to be a quitter. Anyway. Well, no, it, you don't burn cities. You just say, oh, I guess this isn't going to work out and then retreat. Well, you know, it's, it's, that, time of, it's that time of war. You, if, you, if you don't have any use for the city, you burn it. I don't That's, know. It's just not right, Greg. I can't get behind that kind of behavior. <laughs> can't get behind Sorry. these gosh darned war crimes. Anyway. Romans, I'm not liking this. So with the Romans overexposed and exhausted... Mm-hmm. Amanirenes goes back on the offensive, and she yeah. harries Petronius's army all the way back to the city of Primus. All right. So Amanirenes was apparently a very tall and commanding woman. She had facial scars that were considered mm-hmm. marks of beauty, and she had lost an eye to one of the Roman soldiers and came right back into the fight. Yeah, you only need one. You just gotta, if you are yeah. a hardcore person. And she is hardcore. When her husband died, she continued on as the sole ruler, leading her people in wartime against Rome uh, without really giving them breath, right? Mm. The next thing that, that had happened, of course, was that they had fought a battle for the city of Dhaka, and mm-hmm. uh, her son, Akinidad, was killed in that. And she still pressed on. Uh, she just the, has the one son? Yeah, yeah, just the one son. Oh. So her husband's dead, her son is dead. Basically, I one of the writers that I read in research for this put it in terms of, like, with her family dead, the only thing she had left to fight for was her kingdom. And I was like, mm. yes. Yeah, that'll do it. And so at the final battle of the war at the city of Primus, she showed that she understood how best to use her position and free her people from continued Roman incursion. So... It's a truth about most wars that the winner is not necessarily the one with the biggest army or the most advanced military technology. For a smaller power to defeat a bigger power is not really an aberration in war. It comes down to a matter of making victory not worth it. So sometimes the best way to win a war is to simply not lose. Right. You draw the conflict out for long enough that it's not worth it for the larger power to continue, and you make it too costly in lives or economics. So she understood this, and she arrayed her troops at Primus with that in mind. Basically, the Kushites surrounded the city. Mm -hmm. Now, the Romans had siege engines 
and supplies to defend the city pretty much indefinitely. This wasn't a siege. It was a stalemate. Right. So they can't leave. They're completely surrounded. The Romans could, absolutely, if they committed to it, they mm-hmm. could have used their, 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 they had ballista there. They could have punched through the Kushite line. They would have taken heavy losses, but they could have left if they needed to. So not a real siege, just like and, a symbolic siege. And the Kushites could have hit the city, but they would have walked right into the teeth of the legions and the siege engines. So, right, don't want to do that. Exactly. So it really was a stalemate, and intentionally mm-hmm. so. So Petronius sent an envoy to Amani Renas with a peace treaty. He asked her to meet with Caesar Augustus and work out an agreement. Uh, her people responded that they have never heard of this Caesar. Uh, which is a great <laughs> use of shit. Could we please speak to his wife? We don't <laughs> <Yeah>. deal with. <laughs> I'm sorry. Does he have? Does he a have wife? a mother or yeah. a daughter? I'm just yeah. We just want to talk with someone who's you know able to actually the real treat leader. with us. So Augustus at the time was on the Greek island of Samos, preparing to lead an expedition to Syria. Mm-hmm. And Amanirenos sends an envoy to make peace by not going herself. She was using diplomatic language to convey to the Caesar that she was his equal, not his vassal. All right? And I mean, that, that was a, that's a big move right there. Because normally when these things would happen, you'd have the king or queen themselves come and throw themselves at the mercy of the emperor. And the emperor would say, oh, it's fine. You can continue not, to exist. Yeah, like, and she's like, no, I'm not doing that. What's the balance of power at this point? The balance because of power is... Because it seems like they're pretty evenly. They're like on either end of a seesaw. So militarily, mm-hmm. if the might of Rome is brought to force, they could have burned Cush to the ground. The whole country? Oh God, yes. They could have. Okay. They could have trampled Cush. The thing is, is that Amani Renas had the understanding of knowing that, like, you could you could beat us, but we are not going to make it easy for you. You'll feel it in the morning, you know. Yeah. And so, I mean, basically, what it came down to was that Cush was a very fertile land. You, it, it's prime. It's a prime candidate for conquest. Basically, you've got you've got gold. You've got a major trade route. You've mm-hmm. got you've got the Nile. Everything. She does one more thing, which is she sends her ambassadors to Augustus, mm-hmm. and they present him with a bundle of arrows made of gold. Okay, that's nice. They then deliver the Kandake's message. Quote. If you want peace, they are a token of friendship. If you want war, you will need them. End quote. <laughs> oh. Oh, yes. We're at that point in the negotiation. Oh, yes. Yes. She is not. I mean, th- this is this is the I'm sorry. I don't really know her of this moment here. Uh, she's not backing down at all. She directly offers insult to the most powerful man in the most powerful empire on Earth. Augustus looks over the terms she offers and signs the peace treaty. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Okay, so this is nothing less than a surrender, or at the very least, a very favorable capitulation, okay? The the terms are as follows. The Romans have to leave Cush, and mm-hmm. Augustus declares it to be sovereign, 
Okay. Hey, has yeah. he ever done that before? No, not with any of the... the, the basic, All across Europe? <laughs> the basic way that the Romans operated was that if you were a country that bordered on the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. you were almost considered like a vassal kingdom. You, you had to pay tribute to Rome or we'll just invade you, take you over, and then... The next, you know, the next set of borders will, will maybe be more reasonable. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. So this is a first. Augustus declares it to be sovereign, meaning it owes no tribute or taxes to Rome, unlike all the other kingdoms on the Roman borders. Mm-hmm. And then as a final nice thing, the Romans collaborated with the Kushite priests to rebuild and expand the temples that had been destroyed in the war. Hey. Amanirinos gets everything she wanted in the treaty and gave up nothing. There is a very small 12-mile demilitarized zone that's set up between <laughs> the two of them. So after five years of war, the Romans and the Kushites enjoy nearly 300 years of peace. Hey, that's not uh, bad. The, yeah, it's real nice. Uh, Amanirinos would reign for another 11 years. Uh, mm -hmm. She never remarried and never had any more children. And after her death, another Kandake would rule Kush. So, in closing, it's important to note that we don't actually know how the Kushites viewed this war, since their account cannot yet be fully translated. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also important to note that some modern scholars have come to believe that the entire war may have been essentially started by mistake, that uh, Gaius Cornelius Gallus massively overstepped his authority in issuing the taxations in the first place, and right. the Kushites may have gone to war with essentially just him, not the entirety of Rome, I mean, which may have been one of the reasons why Augustus was so quick to destroy Cornelius and just like, fine, yes, you can have all your stuff back. <laughs> you know? Cornelius sounds... He was like a doofus. he was not qualified for that position. He was. I, I feel like he was one of those guys who gets promoted beyond his level of competence, and instead of you know, embracing that he could, he could, you know, maybe rise to that level. He's just mm -hmm. like, no, I'm perfect in every way. Huh. Well, you know, you get all those statues and you start feeling really good. Yeah. Oh, it's those statues. That's why man. I only have a couple in my house. Yep. They'll get you every time. Yep. Uh, okay. So I have two fun facts. <laughs> so <laughs> the name, the name Candace uh -huh. uh, derives from Kandake. Uh, there's a Candace in the Bible. Yeah, there is a Candace that? in the Bible. So in, in the Bible, since you brought mm -hmm. it up, uh, in the New Testament, a treasury official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, mm -hmm. meets with Philip the Evangelist. Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, is more than likely another one of those um, moments where this is, this is a very Roman thing, okay? So since the Romans had no context for a word for ruling queen <laughs> because they, they didn't honestly, have that concept. <laughs> they did not. So they honestly thought it was somebody's name. Okay. <laughs> and it's stuck around ever since the, the, the fact is that in all the Roman histories that talk about this war, mm -hmm. they refer to Amani Renas as the one eyed Candace. Interesting. Thinking that's her name instead of her title. So that would be the equivalent of like someone getting queen or queenie as a first name. Yeah, or somebody thinking that Elizabeth is a synonym for queen. Ah, the Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah. That's ah, this wild. must be the Elizabeth. Yeah, exactly. It's bizarre. Wild. Okay. 
So all of the queens of Kush are called Candace. They're given that title by the Romans. By the, the Romans refer to them as Candace. Not all of okay, so not all so of the Kush. It's just Kushite like one queens. long dynasty, and they're all named Candace. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm wondering how they kept them straight. Like, because I, I couldn't find yeah, any record of the confusing. Romans being like Candace the first, Candace the second. I mean, they um, used Caesar for everyone. Maybe they thought she maybe was. Maybe they thought it was equivalent. Oh, yeah, I maybe, mean, maybe. I mean, after the Golden Arrow incident, I would be. Yeah, I would be really, learning people's names. <laughs> really careful about that. Yep. Okay, sorry, I sidetracked yeah, you. Go ahead. No, no, that's a great <laughs> sidetrack. And it's also worth pointing out mm-hmm. that uh, <clears throat> there was a writer uh, who was unknown and called Pseudo-Callisthenes, okay, who wrote a very fictionalized and grandiose account of the life of Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. In this very fictionalized book, they claim that Candace of Meroe fought Alexander the Great, and in some in some versions of the story, after they fight, they have a romantic encounter. Oh, as you do, as you uh, do, yeah. In reality, Alexander never attacked Nubia and never went further south than a place called Siwa in Egypt. You know, to be honest, I don't think he would have been Candace's type. I she probably would have kicked him out of bed. Any of the Candaces. Any of them. Yeah. So the Kandakes were, were very cool. But yeah, they were Latinized as Candace, and they thought that was their name. Um, <laughs> That's so interesting. Okay, so okay. Second, second random fact. Yes, <clears throat> ready for it. So the head of Augustus that Amani Renos buried under her temple at Meroe. Uh-huh, and stepped on. Was excavated in 1910 by British archaeologists. Hey. Due to it being preserved so perfectly... It is the only surviving statue portrait of Caesar Augustus with its original green and black glass eyes. Interesting. Apparently, they're amazing to look at. They change the emperor's expression with how the light falls on them. Oh, that's creepy. I don't it's like really that. It's really cool. <laughs> I, read a, I read a really good piece about how, like, you know, when the light shines on them a certain way, he looks very, you know, dismissive and imperial. And then another way, he looks very pensive and concerned. And I it's bet just like those eyes that it's cool. follow you around the room, too. Uh, they might be. I don't they know. They must I, be, don't you think? I've seen pictures of them. They look really neat. Like... The techniques used to make them must have been, first of all, very intricate, and second of all, very expensive. I mean, he's an emperor. He can afford it. But it was pretty cool. Yeah, Um, that is interesting. So that's it. The one time that the military might of Rome bit off more than it could chew, a one-eyed African queen who decided she'd had enough of the neighbors trampling her flower beds. Um, Also, she had pet lions and sometimes fed Roman captives who ticked her off to them. Yeah, she did. Uh, The end. (laughs) That was part of my mental picture. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there, there are these, uh, there are these big, uh, you know, murals, carved murals of her with a bunch of captives and mm-hmm. her lions, and and everyone but the captives looks very happy with the whole situation. Yeah, the lions too. Oh yeah, the lions look very happy. <laughs> God. So uh, that's, that's it. That's Queen Amalirinos. Yeah. And uh, the kingdom of Kush would eventually fall into disarray in a couple hundred years and uh, just sort of be absorbed by everybody around it. So, Well, they had a good run there. 300 they years apiece is nothing to sneeze at. Not at all. And, uh, and being, I honestly, I, I, I'm sure I could find somebody if I wanted to look into it. 
and and anybody who mentions mentions Chudaberg Forest, it's not really equivalent. But I can't think of another smaller country that really, you know, gave Rome quite the bloody nose that she did. Because mm. it's like, on the one hand, you know, there was no decisive military victory. They just sort right. of held out until Rome gave up. But on the other hand, the terms of that peace agreement are just so completely in favor mm-hmm. of the Kushites that it's like, you got to think maybe something else happened there. Like, like I, I, I just want to, I just kind of imagine... Caesar Augustus looking over and just being like, oh my God, just, just, <laughs> can we please just have these guys stop? <laughs> Those know. arrows made him nervous. I bet he they poisoned their had arrows a hard too. time sleeping after that. Maybe, maybe that was it. Uh, that is really wild. Do you know where those tablets ended up? Which tablets? The Meroitic tablets that probably tell a they're more still complete there. version of the story. They're still no, where? No, no, they're still there. They're still where? in uh, Sudan. It's, it's a protected UNESCO site. Oh, no kidding. Um, the, uh, most of their, I mean, you know, with, along with the Egyptian grave robbing, you know, phase of the early 1900s, a lot right. of the Kushite pyramids got tomb robbed as well. But, um, you know, they were looking for gold and jewels. They weren't looking for tablets with writing on them. Mm-hmm. So, and apparently there are two forms of Meroitic. One is sort of like a Meroitic cursive. So Ooh. that's been even harder to decipher. But sure. Yeah. That's so cool. I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's really neat. And the language is really, really cool looking. It's like, it's kind of, it's kind of like early Arabic and kind of like Egyptian. It's neat. Hmm. If you, uh, are... if you enjoy your, your interesting fonts, go look up Meroitic <laughs> languages. <laughs> I'm going to look up those glass eyes first. That is gonna They're really creepy and cool, dude. My nightmares. <laughs> They're going to. It's great. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Oh, you're going to love this. It's so terrible. Uh, We're going to talk about the abandonment of the Mary Celeste, a ghost ship which was found floating off the Azores in 1872. So I... I love the ghost stories that surround the Mar- the Marie Celeste. Like mm-hmm. I've been no, no. You said the Marie Celeste. That is not oh. its name. It is the Mary Celeste. Arthur Mary Conan Cel- Doyle wrote a fictionalized version. He used okay. the name Marie Celeste. It made a big mess because that's like because now people think it's that. Okay, you okay. know that's one of the reasons why it became famous okay. in a year when hundreds of other ships went missing in the same area. Well, I'm I'm excited. That sounds amazing. I and I love the Mary Celeste, so I can't wait to talk about this with you.